Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we have a dinner side chat with our resident fireman enthusiast, Adam Stone, who is also a physicist and an aerospace engineer. And we brought him on to discuss just exactly this discovery of gravitational waves means. What big questions remain about the Big Bang, how we could use quantum computing to solve our latest and greatest scientific theories and problems, and what just is out there for us to solve in the world of astrophysics. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is the Dark Sector Laboratory in Antarctica. And the reason why we're talking about the Dark Sector Laboratory in Antarctica is that this week, some scientists from this Harvard-Smithsonian School of Astrophysics, led by John Kovac, have announced that using the telescope ICEPT-2 at the the Antarctica Laboratory have discovered evidence for gravitational waves. They've done this by analysing the cosmic background radiation, information or light from near the Big Bang, and identified some polarisation of light, or B-mode curls as they're calling them, which they believe indicates gravitational waves. Now, they haven't published the full paper yet, that's coming in due time, but they've outlined that this information could also be verified by using other satellites and other telescopes out there, such as the European Space Agency's Planck Telescope. So they've identified what they think is the smoking gun for gravitational waves. And why do we care about gravitational waves? Well, they tell us a lot about the history and the beginning of the universe, in particular, um, what happened around the Big Bang. So I asked one of my colleagues, a friend of mine, who is a trained physicist as well as an aerospace engineer, just about what is going on here and why gravitational waves matter. What exactly do they tell us about the Big Bang and the universe and what exactly this will mean as a larger challenge for science? At the end of the show, we get towards are there any big scientific discoveries out there left for us to discover and what do we need to do to advance science in these areas? So tune in for this Dinner with the Scientists as we talk about gravitational waves and what they mean. What have we then found out about gravitational waves, aside from giving us more information about the way gravity model works? Well, we had no information if you ask a scientist, which you are... Well, you're a qualified astrophysicist. Phys- I'm a qualified many things, but let's go with scientist today. You have an honours degree, come on. You're more qualified than my dabbling in casual astrophysics. Correct. <laughs> so, if you ask a scientist... Which you are. Gravitation- <laughs> gravitational waves exist, they have to exist. Yes. This is no surprise to anyone. Um, what we've done is we, we've observed... <laughs> <Just> claim credit. <laughs> me and my colleagues... You and your five-year degree, man. You, you earned that. You earned that piece of the pride. Six. Six <laughs> years. Um, Some of that was... Collected evidence and for the first time, I guess, shown actual proof of them, which wasn't that astounding. What's the astounding thing is that we can now get information from it. We can now learn things. We can now put start putting some sort of rough numbers on quantities for energy and other things associated before. So we can that, model. We can that model electromagnetic the, fog lifts. Right. So we can model the yeah, way the gravitational yeah. waves behave, especially around the one second after the Big Bang time. Yeah. Without before we were just like we have no idea. Maybe they do this. There's a little bit of that. Okay. So, but do we know about what? What does it tell us about stuff after? after one second after the Big Bang? Does it tell us anything about the way gravity works in a bigger sense? Obviously, well, it has impacts for inflation in the universe. Yes, yes. I mean, it helps build into the model for gravity. 
Um, it confirms what we suspected. Which about, is good. We like confirmation. Which is nice. It doesn't mean we throw everything away. Well, it more sort of feeds into theories that had origins before that one second. So unification theory, for example. It feeds into that and then has flow and effects for that field. Okay. Um, it feeds into other things, other measurables that we couldn't measure, basically, um, before that one second time frame that we can now start penciling in values for and saying, oh, well, if we use this number, suddenly that feeds into our already existing constraints for this model and therefore it knocks out all that and we're looking at something like this. And we now have only a few competing models to model this crazy behaviour for this particular case in science. Right, so there's a, there's a number of cases. And that applies to many, many, many things. Yeah, so there's a lot of... So, all right, so this helps us understand a little bit about the way gravity works and about the way the universe was working, especially around the time of the Big Bang and what could have happened there. Yes. We don't know what happened fully in that plank time to one second, but we can now it's see... It's very hard to see. I mean, we're, re- we're reaching here. We're reaching. Yeah. I mean, come on. But now we can see it, whereas before we couldn't see anything at all, really. Wow. Because light didn't exist. See it's a, a generous term. We of could course, measure, but we can, we can. For the first time ever, we can measure something before then, yeah. which is the biggest breakthrough, I yeah. think. We we have measured something before that barrier that we've been faced with so far. Right. So when 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 we talk about all this, from my understanding, how they did it was they just like analysed photos of the background radiation. Uh, they look for wiggle in light from old parts of the universe. Correct. Where it's remnants of like, like we look for background radiation in the, to give us clues about the Big Bang. Yes. So you've got your background radiation emanating from this, basically the electromagnetic fog. I'm yeah. talking about the fog. That's the the barrier that you can't see beyond because light didn't exist yet. So as soon as the fog lifts, you have the first light. That's our cosmic uh, background radiation. And that's um, that nice little cool. Yeah, you see the picture all the time with like the green and the blue and all the little dots and going around. It looks like a really artistic terrain. It's quite cool. Yeah. Um, But that's basically the footprint of electromagnetic radiation at the Big Bang. Correct. Which is also the static you hear on your TV sometimes. Or some of the static. Some of the static you hear on your TV and radio. Which in itself is pretty cool because by analysing... (laughs) Which is amazing when you think of But looking at that... Picture um, is pretty cool too because you can see where there were sort of density clusters and it sort of reflects where the earliest galaxies and stars and star clusters formed, which is also pretty cool. Right, so they're looking at curls in similar type of data and the curls of light to tell them about the impact of the waves before that. Yeah, so they're looking at, I guess, the wiggle of the early light because if you think about it this way, when the universe expanded, it wiggled. Yeah. And they can then see that trace elements of the wiggle still wiggling in the they, early lights. So they can, so you can't they, see it in the later light because it's died out, of course. Like, yeah. you think of it as a spring. It's not it's not springing as much now. But back then, oh boy, was it springing. But if you didn't know there was a spring there and you saw this thing move, then you could say, hang on, it moved like this in that first stage. I mean, we're talking about this in pretty simplistic terms. Yeah. Light doesn't wiggle, but yeah. it doesn't. Um, but, but, yeah, it, it, it's this sort of, I guess, almost interference with the light. You can infer... Something, Something interacting with the light. You there. can infer the behaviour of the yeah. system that's making the light move yeah. by... So what, what they're trying to do now um, is confirm... Because what they've done, they've detected it in certain sort of wavelengths of light. So yeah. what they want to do now, of course, is confirm that this is the case for 
all wavelengths, all the other different types of wavelengths of light around the universe, you know, from different sources, different wavelength sort of bands, and confirm that this wiggle is still there. And once they've done that, suddenly you confirm, you can start honing in your data, and you get a clearer and clearer idea of what's going on. So, with the ability to see... Well, the problem is we can only go back to one second after the Big Bang because that's where light starts. That is when, uh, basically, the fundamental force... The the electromagnetic force basically splits out. You have the emergence of photons. Light light is born in the universe. We have light. And so You can't see things earlier than light because light didn't exist. Contrary to the, uh, the biblical idea... Um, let there be let light. There be actually, light. well, actually, to be no, fair, no, that is the let there be light moment. That is when yeah. light came into yeah. the universe. Okay. Before that, it was darkness. Right. So allegorically, this fits in with competing theories. The Bible was right. <laughs> allegorically, creationism, creationists were onto something. Well, actually, you, you joke, but one of the people who came up with the theory for the Big Bang was actually an Italian astronomer monk from the Vatican. Hmm. Because they thought it was a very nice, neat example um, yeah. of how everything would come from nothing. So it's not an incongruous idea. No, no, I don't think they're competing necessarily. They just say different things. So anyway, so we could only get up to one second after because right. that's where light and started. If you subscribe to a grand unified theory where all the fundament, all the fundamental forces were Must at be one connected. point the same, yeah. with this new ability um, of observing gravitational waves, it lets you go further back from when light split away. Now, previously, you couldn't see when the other forces were splitting away necessarily. We had models for this. But we didn't know. But it was before that time where light existed, basically. Yeah, so... But with the gravitational waves, we we wind the clock back to 10 to the negative 35 seconds. That's real small. That's what's called a Planck constant. That is a Planck unit of time after the Big Bang. Which is the fundamental measurement of time. We're not going to ask what is time because that's a really esoteric concept but is it yes let's not get into that <laughs> suffice time. to say time is a the, the smallest unit of time the tick of the universe so to speak if you listen to Terry Pratchett is the Planck's constant correct Terry Pratchett and Ian Stewart they have a fantastic book called The Science of Discworld and it is a really good exploration of all of science so we can now wind the clock back and with this new thing we can we can get some measurements for the energy of the universe, which allow us to plug into certain models and get a firmer idea, I guess, surrounding unification of different of different forces. So I hadn't thought this actually that. feeds into that. I hadn't thought about that because if you can only get back to so far, and then when you have light starting, well, that's the thing. We've had no evidence really before that time frame because mm. we just couldn't observe anything. Everything we observe is through light, and. You know, you can't observe observe something before light happens. But it's however, the ripples in the universe affect the earliest light in the universe. And that's, that's when they were the most pronounced. And, that's and really observing cool. the earliest light in the universe, you can see the ripples, and then you can get information about right. That. And what it actually enables you to do is actually observe gravity in its purest form without light. Effectively, if light didn't exist at that point, uh, yes, yeah, sorta. Of. The other two, the other two fields, other two forces would have been mixed in. And light would have been mixed in, but not as, I guess, not as prevalent, but if, we couldn't, if it didn't exist for us to measure it, we, we're not seeing any evidence of it. Yeah, I'll pay that, in a way. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to think, like, so if you think about it in terms of a mathematical equation, yeah. 
Light represents a constant, something that we know, right? Something we can get information about, a variable, right? Light we can observe, right? Yes. If we add gravity into that mix, there's yes. also another thing that we can chug in. So instead of four unknowns, or the four fundamental forces, yes, um, which is what gravity, uh, weak nuclear, strong nuclear, and what electromagnetic. Yep. Yep. So when we know, when we know, when we can see electromagnetic. And we have a better model to explain gravity that just leaves the weak and strong nuclear forces. We have... We still have as unknowns, but we have now more information to look at. Uh, we have better models for electromagnetism, strong nuclear and weak nuclear, infinitely so than we have for gravity at the moment. Gravity is the biggest unknown. We, we know it's just so hard to get a handle on. Is that because... We can map it in a macro, macro sense. sense, yeah, and with classical uh, mechanics. So you can say with a Newtonian formula, this is what gravity is, but you don't yeah, know why Yeah, and we can look at the observ- observables there. But when you try and actually put it in a quantum framework, everything falls apart. Wait, it, just, it just doesn't like it. Well, that's String theory back... attempts to, and all the other sorts of theories like that. But yeah, essentially we just lack the knowledge there. Is that because that the rest of the other forces were actually developed once string theory oh, sorry, string theory, once quantum mechanics existed? So all of our explanations for them inherently build in this no. understanding, whereas no, gravity no. is classical? Uh, you can explain... Aside from general relativity, which explains that connection. No, you can do um, electromagnetism in a classical sense to a degree. Yeah, until you have to try and pick which one it is. Away. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> strong and weak nuclear because they're so close. Like the actual distance for the force to react is so small that you can't really do it in Modern classical, classical sense. mechanics. Yeah, um, it sort of falls apart very, very quickly. <laughs> but electromag, you can to a degree. Um, but it's, a, it's also a funny one that one because you can do it independent of relative. You can sort of incorporate relativity, you can not incorporate it. It does it very easily, and it very, does it very smoothly with that one, because it's all about light, and relativity seems to be inexplicably linked with light. Perhaps a coincidence, perhaps not, but the speed of light's just one of those universal mm. speeds that sort of feeds into relativity. One of the major factors of our universe. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not so much the speed of light, it's more sort of that's the speed limit of the universe, and light happens to operate at that speed limit, well, much like gravitational waves. directly observe inflation. We proved that it was, when we've done it since the 1920s, and that's where we actually came up with the idea of the Big Bang. Before that, we didn't know where, all the stages of the universe. Hubble did his work where he said that basically the, um, the galaxies are fleeing away from us. They were all really good. We proved that the universe was expanding. Then everyone said, well, maybe it's expanding only, only to then contract again later and then shrink in the Big Crunch. Correct. Which is called the cyclic, either the big crunch or the cyclic model. Correct. You cannot. That's the big. That's the cyclic model. The other model is that it's infinitely expanding. Correct. And it just continues to expand forever. Look, you got your big expansion one. You got your cyclic, and then you've got just the single big crunch model. Yeah. Where it's not cyclic. Right. And there's one where it just sort of stops and everything freezes at some point. That's where Remember? Einstein comes in. He had the gravitational constant, the constant, sorry, the cosmological constant. Correct. Which is his fudge factor to be like, I have no idea what the hell is happening. That's his fudge factor that he then decided was the biggest mistake of his life, which turns out, turned out to be correct. correct. Right. Which is a good story in and of itself. Mm. So, I feel that we had done a lot on that area. Yeah. 
So then what else did this prove to us? Because we haven't had any new evidence since the 1920s, as you pointed out. No, but when we had the background radiation scans that we did with yeah. microwaves in the 1950s and 60s. They were cool. But didn't they tell us about the state of the Big Bang? Uh, isn't this just a study on the photos of that? They told us stuff about what happened and what the universe resembled one second after the Big Bang. Right. And from there, you can start throwing up all sorts of theories saying, Oh, look, it was like this. No, no, this caused the inflation. No, no, this... The inflation in itself, or the hyperinflation at one point, mm. is still unexplained. Like, because there was there's actually two rates of inflation. Correct. There's there's the uh, the kind of the first. The universe second. is still inflating at the moment, but at a much slower rate than it well, did. No, there's even like multiple stages of inflation. Correct. Right? Straight after the Big Bang, things went nuts. Yeah, yeah. Like we went from a singularity point source to being over, say, like tens of thousands of kilometers. We expanded at a rate, at a speed, if you like. Difficult to measure expansion speeds, yeah. but faster than the speed of light. Right. Um, and which is hard to get your head around, perhaps. And space itself... <laughs> hard to get my head around. It's impossible. Why? Space itself can move at whatever speed it likes. Oh, so Moving right. through space, though, you're limited. Yes, yes. So, so this is why space can move at faster than the speed of light. Yeah, so your frame, so a frame of reference can move whatever the yeah. speed it wants. Exactly. So like on Earth, you have a speed limit of 60 kilometers an hour, but, that, but also you're hurtling on Earth through... Yeah, I mean, the road can move at whatever speeds it likes. The road can stretch 100 kilometres an hour, but you're still only allowed to drive at 60 on the road. Right. Roads don't stretch, though. Universes do. <laughs> right, and they did in the, they did in the, they did in that hyperinflation, well, well, the initial period of the, the Big Bang. Yeah, and then for some reason it's slowed. Right. And we don't know why. Okay. And according to the measurements today, the universe seems to be speeding up inflation again, depending on who you ask. Really? Depending on who you are. Is this, is this is this research based on either the background radiation or is it based on the measuring of neutrons, neutrinos? I'm not sure entirely. I think it's more sort of astronomical observations. Okay. Um, looking at galaxies yep. and things moving apart in that respect. And from that, it looks like things are moving faster away from each other. But once again, that's depending on who you ask. Yeah. Um, and the big fudge factor there is dark energy. Yeah, so no is, one knows what dark energy is, well, no we one have, can explain it. Right, so this is one of the other major issues in astrophysics that we have zero ideas about. Like, so in my mind... Oh, we've got a thousand ideas, but we, <laughs> we just have, can't prove anything. We have zero proofs about Like, Correct. There's a lot of areas of astrophysics and physics that I find really fascinating, and I love reading books on them, but I have this massive malaise with it all. You've read one. You've read, once you've read one book, you've read them all, and no one's able to a offer you any answers or b offer you any sort of more logical explanation. It's just all yeah. There's five theories. Yeah, they're all good. Well, you reach the end of knowledge. And this at is that my point, frustration with Brian Cox. Faith that why why are you frustrated with Brian Cox? I love his work and it's really great. It's fantastic. But no one has better. He hands. was in a band. Go he, on. He was. He was an amazing pop yes. singer. <laughs> And I find that more amazing than his science. But go on. Um, but like, it's my problem with that. I get, I get disillusioned because once I've read so many books, there's not. It feels like there hasn't been much progress. Higgs boson aside, to actually these other big questions that we've known about for thirty years that we haven't had any more evidence to solve. Yes and no. The leaps and bounds that we make in science in the last, or we have made in science in the last, say, ten, fifteen years, are harder to translate. Or to relay to the common science observer. The common science enthusiast. I'm willing yes. to pay that. But and they're more subtle. And that's, I think, it's been the focus. Because it's hard to go and make a big discovery. 
Yeah, I, I doesn't just happen. I, I get that. I mean, if you look at Kuhn's theory of scientific progress, you either have two stages. One of those stages is where you make a revolutionary leap, and the other stage is where you make incremental change on it. Hmm. Change from classical physics to quantum mechanics, revolutionary leap. Well, that's a big one. Quantum mechanics afterwards, ev- like evolution, stage steady progress on that. I don't feel like we've had another big one since... The, the next biggest one is going to be quantum computing. If you can get that up and running, that's yeah, going it, to open so many doors but in that's not, so many fields. But that's not going to open fields in... And, and uh, understand the big questions. It's going to knock out a lot of things and help people focus and probably some, provide some solutions. Like, Through yeah, research will explode if quantum computers well, come online. Well, things at the moment are put in the too hard basket because we literally cannot analytically solve the equations or compute them in, in a reasonable time frame. Yeah, before a thousand years. Okay. Like that, that's the time for your calculation on the, like the highest supercomputer. Okay. You get a quantum computer, suddenly you get an answer and you can keep going and you can move past this giant roadblock. That, 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 as, a, as an aside, that raises as an, an aside. interesting question about whether or not you actually get into what is would be a very familiar debate for your the Enlightenment era um, empiricists, which is, I should be able to model the every position of what's happening in the universe because I know the rules. Do you? And like the whole the whole big empiricist kind of idea was the universe is a machine that we understand because we have these formulas and these theories. And then if we just if we just knew the initial conditions of the universe, we could we could figure out how the entire universe worked. Yeah, the rebuttal, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that, that was that was the idea, and yeah. obviously it is very flawed. Well, yeah, the I rebuttal believe, for I, that is quantum mechanics. Yeah, right. So, are you suggesting that with quantum computing, it would enable us actually to make progress on that idea again, which we sort of abandoned since we we realised that things aren't as simple as they we thought they were. No, because things are still random. But yeah, but you can model the probability field and say, look, these are the likely outcomes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you can, and it would let you advance a bit further in that respect, but in a lot of classic problems, and, well, prob- quantum problems can be expressed as many, 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 many classic problems, <laughs> and then you brute force your way through that with a quantum computer, <laughs> which is handy. Um, but what, so you're suggesting that the modelling that can be done by quantum computing would solve what kind of issues? Because it's not going to solve, it wouldn't have solved the Higgs the mass problem, to put it bluntly, that the Higgs, the confirmation of the Higgs boson no, did. No, that's true. Um, so there's something called uh, quantum graph theory, for example, which tries to model space with an abstract or sort of like, I guess, the beginnings of space or the emergence of space-time mm-hmm. with abstract concepts called graphs. But before you get any sort of model big enough... And this isn't just this field, this is anything. With any sort of model, um, with, say, a thousand, a million data points, a million sort of things, even like CFD, Mm. um, as soon as you start creating a larger and larger mesh, um, the computer just shuts down. It goes, ah, too hard, too many things going on. Right. I'm crying, I'm crying, computing power stops. But what question is that kind of trying to... Quantum graph theory, what's it trying to explain? Well, that would be, if you get it right, um, a model that can explain the emergence of space-time. From right. some sort of entangled state to some sort of emergent feature. <laughs> now, this is something of a tangent. So, if we come full circle back to the Big Bang, it, it is one competing possible model, and it's an interesting one in that okay, respect. So, so that's that's an idea that what the big the the properties of the universe is an emergent thing out of a quantum field. Mm-hmm. Correct, and well, 
not properties. That, well, yes, they are, but I'm talking specifically, I guess, locality, space, distance. These sort of meaningful things mm. didn't always exist, which might seem foreign, but, you know, right. think of the universe pre-Big Bang. You're looking at, like, a tiny infinitesimal point. Infinitesimal what was, point which had what was one metre away? Didn't yeah. make sense. Right. Because so, everything was next to everyone. So, And that's one of the big issues. So coming back to the original thing about the whole one minute pre- previous or after the Big Bang. Yeah. Right. So we had all our information now, which gets got us to one minute before yeah. the Big Bang. We can rewind the clock to one second so after, one the, second, big, yeah, one after second the Big, big Bang. Bang. Right. And... What we can then do then is like we can we can we can see all these models we can map them there, and then we have to extrapolate, and that's when suddenly you've got a hundred competing models all going with different ideas and all sorts of funny things. And a lot of ways to actually prove those are very difficult because their computational complexity also is even quite high. Partly, but there's a lot of them. Data. A lot of them do the same thing and just different ideas, and you know maybe they'll be right, maybe they'll be wrong. It's hard to know. Mm. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we've had a dinner side chat about astrophysics, what's out there for us to solve in the world of physics, and just exactly what gravitational wave discovery means. We'll talk about quantum computing and the latest implications for scientific research. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.